privilege to speak on the last of a series of the parables and the parable that I've been asked to speak about today is the parable of the talents that's found in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. And I'm going to ask with a question and if you're my age then you might find this a threatening question um, but I've got it written down here so I'm going to ask it, how good is your memory? How good is your memory? What do you find it easier to remember? Do you find it easier to remember a series of facts? Um, do you find it easy to remember some sort of technical report? Or do you find it easier to remember a good story? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, for many of us, when we think about what it is to remember, a good story is something that stays in our mind. Somebody once said with sermons, you've got to be careful because if you tell a joke, people remember the joke and they forget the sermon or the message. But um, we know about stories. And, and I was thinking to myself, you know, there are things that were significant um, things about being a follower of Jesus that were stuck in my mind for many, many years and often they've been around stories. Um, I can remember um, being in a Christian coffee shop when I was a teenager um, and talking in a table and there was a couple of people there and there was a fellow there who said, well, it's all right to be wanting to be a follower of Jesus, but surely we can do that on our own. We can do that at home. We don't need to come together in churches or, or fellowship with people. And I remember there was another young fellow at the table and I think he was Swedish or Scandinavian and he said, let me tell you a story from where I come from. And he said, there were a number of brothers and each brother had a stick and each stick could easily be broken one by one. But he said, when you take all the sticks and you bind them together in a hole, Somehow or other, you cannot break those sticks because they gain strength from being bound together. That was 50 years ago. I still remember that story. Um, another example or story that I've often told people when we think about us being together as Christians and the importance of fellowship um, is just a simple story about a, a fire with lots of burning coals in and that if you take a coal from out of the middle of the fire and you stick it out by itself in isolation, it quickly grows cool. But if you take it from outside and put it straight back in to the middle of that fire, it gains warmth again. Stories can be powerful because it just reminds us of some truths. And Jesus um, was a master storyteller. Jesus was the one who was able to um, tell stories that stuck in people's minds which gave them truth about God. Um, I'm a teacher by training and background and I have always been in awe at Jesus the master teacher. Um, he was able to take stories that common people could understand and present heavenly truths. And so today as we come to our parable series or the end of our parable series, um, I want to do something a little bit different. I don't want to just tell you this is what I think the parable means. I actually want to do the school teacher thing and tell you how I go about reading God's word with respect and understanding 
so that for you this doesn't have to be the last parable in the series, that you can go home and read the many parables and teachings of Jesus as um, he shared with us. I'm also a little bit intimidated. You know, we're blessed in this church with a pastoral team with passion and ability and gift. And I feel very honoured at my stage in life to be in the team with the rest of the team. Um, Unity is something in our team, our pastoral team, which we hold really special. And you probably don't recognise this, but the parable series, each of the pastors has taken a parable. And they've been good, haven't they? They've got passion, they've got enthusiasm, they've got energy. So it's a bit scary being the last in the line um, to bring a parable. But hopefully what I'm going to do today is bring together um, what we're doing. So let's, let's read just the first part of the parable to get the storyline and then we'll work through. This is found in Matthew 25 and I'm going to start by reading verse 14 to verse 19. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave, the NIV says bags of gold, most translations call this talents. He gave five talents to another, two bags and to another one, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went out at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. If you like, that's the overview of this story of the master who entrusted his wealth to his servants for them to use while he was away and then he comes back and they meet together in a period of accountability. As I said to you, um, the, the parables, it's very important that when we come to God's word that we um, come to it in a way that honours what's written and seeks to understand it. Some years ago, I had the privilege several times of being invited to the Solomon Islands. And in the Solomon Islands, it's an amazing place. Um, revival has swept through at various times in that island. There's a very strong Christian presence. And I had the opportunity to go to a number of pastors' conferences to equip local pastors in different areas of the Solomon Islands. You can see which Solomon Islander I am in that picture up there. I tell you what, I always wear shoes at this church. I don't think I've got shoes on there, but that's interesting. Um, I asked the leadership of the South Sea Evangelical Church, which is a church whose membership is about 16% um, of the national population. It's hundreds of thousands of people. I said, if you're asking me to come and share with pastors, what's the greatest need in your churches? What's the greatest need for pastors? And they said this, helping our pastors to read and interpret God's word with integrity and understanding. And I said, but you guys have experienced revival. God has done amazing things. He said, yes, but the difficulty is this, 
that as we go on, people just pick up the Bible, take a verse and plug into it whatever meaning they think they want to do. And many of our pastors haven't got any training in the Word. So if you can come across and share how to read the Bible and how to understand it, that would be a great blessing. And I thought to myself, you know, that's true for us here in Australia too. We cannot be a people who say, well, we pay pastors to tell us what God's Word says. We need to be people of the book ourselves who can go and read God's word and hear what he's saying. So here is the pastor's secrets of interpreting parables. It's very simple, really. There's a couple of things that you need to do. Here's the list. The first one is that when you read something in scripture, and in this case parables, you want to understand the literary context in which it's written. Literary context, fancy word. You need to look at where it's placed in the book that it's written and understand the themes of where it goes. It's not just a whole lot of odd ideas. There is something there that will help us understand what the writer and what God through his Holy Spirit wanted to communicate to us. The second thing is we need to understand that it's written in terms of the culture of its day and not our culture. And so we actually need to read through the story and start to go through and say, well, in those days it was like this and understand the meaning there rather than just assume it's just like today. The third thing with parables, and this is really important, parables normally have one or do have one central truth. They're not complicated stories. You know, in our world, we often try to add all sorts of meanings to all sorts of parts. We call that an allegory, and there's very few allegories in the Bible. Um, parables have a main meaning, and that's what we should look for, not trying to make every single thing mean some other thing, but to find what the general sense is. And then the fourth thing that we need to do is that we need to be able to apply the truth to our lives in our culture and in our context. And what I'm saying to you today, I know it's not very glamorous or exciting, but it is that if we can come to all of the parables in the Bible, and if we take those things in mind, we can start to understand clearer and better what God is saying. And in a world where people will tell us all sorts of things that they want us to believe, we need to be people who go back to the book and to understand for ourselves. So let's start with Matthew's book, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, of the Gospels, it is written with a particular um, emphasis, and that was that it was written to people who were familiar with the Jewish faith. They were um, people who were Jews who had become Christians, so he's writing to the church, but it's written in the context of the Jewish faith. And so it's important to understand um, where that's coming from. And, and much of the book, um, there's a conflict that goes on between the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders who um, saw themselves as being the protectors of the Jewish faith and Lord Jesus and the gospel that he brought announcing God's kingdom was coming. And Matthew, because he was writing in that style, um, the book is actually like a, um, a manual to help the people in the church to understand what they believed. And if you start to go a bit deeper, you'll find that the book of Matthew is broken up into five segments or five chap 
um, not chapters, books, five sections, and each of those sections has a similar sort of theme. Um, the sections normally start off with some um, descriptions about Jesus' life and ministry. It normally has a section which captures some of Jesus' teaching and some of Jesus' words. And then it also has a series of stories that Jesus told that reflected on that particular theme. And so when we come to this parable, it is in a section of um, Matthew which is talking about Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming and what's going to happen in between. Um, so it talks about the conflicts that Jesus had with the Pharisees. It then has teachings in chapters 23 and 24 about what's going to happen after Jesus' um, first coming and as we move through what we call the end times and what's going to happen, and there's a whole lot of teaching there, information. And then we come to five parables, and they start from Matthew 24, 42. And each parable has at its centre some truth about those end times and about our part in it. So, for example, the first one, um, is the story about the thief in the night and it's talking about nobody knows the hour or the time in which Christ will come again. Just as we don't know when the burglar's going to come and rob our house. Um, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because we, we tend to have some interesting ideas about when Jesus is coming again. When I was um, the deputy principal at Mueller College... Um, one of the best excuses I ever had for not doing homework was a couple of kids who came and heard that somebody in Korea, I think it was, had said Jesus was coming on that weekend and they worked out that if Jesus was coming on the weekend, they didn't have to do their homework for Monday. And I had to explain to them, I'm very keen, I'm very glad that they're expecting that Jesus is coming, but they still were responsible for doing their homework until he actually took them to be with him in glory but so jesus is teaching something there about that and the next one is really the story about the two servants and it talks about how um, there are two types of people people who are faithful and people who are wicked in terms of the way that they live their lives during this intervening period there's that story about the ten virgins, you know, with the oil, and they all started out, but some of them weren't prepared for the long distance. They ran out of oil and they missed Christ's return or the bridegroom's return. There's our parable that we're going to look at in some depth, and then the final parable is about separating sheep from the goats, about the fact that there will be a judgment that comes. So every parable doesn't have to have every sense of meaning. But our task today and when we read God's word is to understand what it's saying to us. So let's think about the culture of the story. As I said before, one of the, one of the things is that we so easily take our ideas of where we are and try and make the Bible say what we think rather than coming and understanding what the Bible is saying and let it transform us. Um, there's different words for this. Some people talk about we've got to walk in the sandals of those who go before us. We need to try and put ourselves into that situation or circumstance. 
One of the pictures that I really like is that of um, a toffee or a Christmas toffee. You know how you get those toffees that are wrapped up in the shiny paper and inside is the toffee? Do you eat the paper? No, you don't. You carefully undo the paper, you take the sweet out and you enjoy the sweet. When we come to read the Bible, it's a bit like that. There's God's truth and it's wrapped up in a cultural wrapping of the era and the people of that day. And God wants us to take time to understand what the wrapping is so that we can understand the truth before we seek to apply it to ourselves. One of the greatest problems that we have in, um, in, in church and in, in God's um, work often is where we try to apply um, later meanings and almost force them into the parable and then use that to say this is what God says. Let me give you an um, example. I'm taking a big risk here. So um, I, I told you about telling jokes. People don't normally laugh at my jokes, but I'm doing this for a purpose. Sometimes we actually substitute meanings into the Bible for humour. Let me give you an example. Have you seen some of those questions, you know, like who was the first tennis player in the Bible? It was Joseph because he served in Pharaoh's court. Or who was, the, um, who was the motorcyclist in the Bible? Moses because he um, um, roared in the desert on his triumph. Um, you know, I, I grew up thinking that the smallest man in the Bible was Nehemiah until somebody said to me, that's not true, there was a guard who slept on his watch. And I don't know how big watches were then, but that must be smaller than Nehemiah. We do that in terms of humour, but you know what we're actually doing? We're taking something with a different meaning and finding something in the parable and attaching that meaning. And we all think it's funny because we know, oh, you know, when, when Moses was um, triumph, on his triumph, it wasn't really a motorcycle. We'd have to go back to the verse and see what it's talking about. So let's have a look at the, um, the story that we're going. And let's take some of the things there that will help us to more clearly understand what's happening. So on the screen, you've got back verse 14 to 18. We've already read that. But let's start with the word talents. In the NIV, it talks about bags of gold. When, when it talks about the master gave his servants talents, it certainly wasn't skills and abilities and, and things like that. Um, in fact, in those times, a talent was a measure of weight. And what would happen would be that you would um, give out a certain quantity of something that was precious, coins or gold or silver or bronze, um, and you would weigh it. And a talent weighs anything between about 25 and 35 kilograms. So if it was gold and you were giving each person a talent was 25 to 35 kilograms, it was a significant amount of wealth. Um, what happens was that um, the normal wage for a labourer in those times, um, a talent of gold would be worth about 20 years' wages. So what we've got to take from the parable is that this master was giving to his servants a large amount of resources. He was entrusting them with considerable amount of his wealth so that they could use that while he was away. 
Now, the next thing that we need to do to start to think about what it meant to the people who were hearing the story at first was, what about servants? What do you think of when you think of servants? Do you think of like, you know, um, in England when they had servants who were the butlers and the handmaids and whatever? Um, do we think, you know, oh, almost like slaves, people who were, um, had no real responsibility, they just had to do whatever the master said? Well, in this time, there were servants in people's households, like what we're talking about here, that were not lowly servants of limited ability. They were very resourceful and well-ability people. In, in today's culture, it would be like having a business and having some key executives and employment people who were there. It was not uncommon for the master to share um, his responsibility and the profits from his responsibility to these trusted servants. There are even examples in the Bible where somebody who would have a servant but had no children, the servant would become their um, heir. And so in this story that we're talking about, it's not just giving some servants a whole lot of money and a whole lot of instructions. These are people who could take those resources and use them as effectively, and hopefully more effectively than the master himself so that his kingdom could be built up. You might ask yourself, why different amounts to each servant? Why five? Why two? Why one? Well, it wasn't because the servant, the, the master had favourites. It wasn't because the guy who got five was sort of um, a nicer person. Um, it tells us in the passage that they were given it according to their abilities, that they were each entrusted with um, wealth according to their abilities that they have. And then we read on into the passage and we see what happens when the master comes back to see how they've got on. Verse 20, it says, The man who would receive five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And the man with the two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. As we read that, we see that for the two servants who had taken those resources and used them, that they get a double blessing. There's two blessings there. There is the blessing of getting, receiving more resources to continue to serve the master, but they are also invited to enter into the joy of the master, to share in the benefits of what has happened. You see, the focus of this parable is talking about the stewardship of those who the master entrusted in his absence. The five and the two talent servants are equally commended. There's no difference in the master's sense of appreciation. The fact that one had five and made five more is no more celebrated than the one who had two and made two more. 
um, they are invited into the master's joy. And one of the principles that we see in the Bible, not just in here, is that God is in the process of entrusting people and it's often entrusting people with small amounts, but when we are faithful with small amounts, he will entrust us with big amounts or big tasks or, or things to do. Um, God wants us to have a servant heart. But the third servant, um, his story is different. Reading on from verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. The servant who received the one talent is condemned not because of the size of his responsibility but because of his failure to use what the master had entrusted him. It's very interesting that the picture of taking this talent and burying it is very much like um, a grave where something is dead and it's out of your life. This servant, even though he was commissioned by the master, chose as though it didn't even exist. It was buried and it was out of sight and out of use. When you read the book of Matthew, if you want to understand, at least in the immediate term, who people would think the equal of the wicked servant would be, um, it would seem pretty clear that the Pharisees and the leaders of the law who were in opposition to Jesus, who thought that they knew God's law, um, but they totally rejected when Jesus came and offered them to follow him. And so for many of them, not all, but for many of them, um, they treated Jesus as somebody to be killed, out of the way, not engaged with. It's interesting that the wicked servant, even when confronted by the master, there's no sense of repentance or apology. In fact, he tells a story, it's really the master's fault. Because the master was so strict and, and, and reaping where he didn't sow and whatever, he tried to justify the fact that he had done nothing with what he had been commissioned to. The other thing that is interesting in terms of the passage there is the, the little bit that says, well, surely you could have gone and deposited the money in a bank, at least I would have got some interest. But I don't think that that line really is talking about the master saying, and that would have been a good idea. Even that was not a good idea. In fact, in Jewish culture at that time, um, the law forbade them from lending money to other Jews in order to get interest. It was sort of okay to go to a Gentile and to make money out of a Gentile by putting it in the bank and getting some money. But in terms of the culture that God had given the Jewish people, um, that was not the way to do things. And so I think that in the story, it's like, 
Um, you know, even if you just sat on it and got some interest and did nothing yourself, that is not what the master expected or what God wanted expected as well. So what happens? The master, verse 28, getting towards the end of our story. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, Again, we're trying to understand this from the culture in which it's written. You know, in our 21st culture, um, we tend to shear away from terms like weeping and gnashing of teeth because in the New Testament, um, that term is used seven times and it's always referring to the separation and the rejection of people when Christ comes again, that these people will be separated from God. They have not accepted his call, they have not accepted his commission and so the fate of them at the conclusion of the age is that they will be separated from God. All right, so we've talked about how does it fit into the the book that it's written in. We've talked about what are some of the cultural things that will help us to understand better. So that leaves us then to just ask ourselves what is the central point? We don't have to um, add everything means something. Um, As I said before, that's an allegory. But if we tried to just take one main point from the story, what would it be? And the reality is that it's not brain science, really. It's um, It's not rocket science. It's really just trying to see what the Bible clearly says. Um, we've got to guard against the idea of having secret meanings and this word really means this and this word really means that. And so let's talk about the central point. Well, the first two servants are clearly commended when the master returns for their productivity and their wise use of the resources that they were given. The master called them, he commissioned them, and then they served him faithfully And so that those who serve the master faithfully um, are doing what the master asks and are rewarded. They've been faithful and so they are rewarded. And so the third servant is the different case because he did not accept the commission. He did not accept the opportunity that the master had given him and he didn't manage the resource um, for the, the master's benefit and therefore he was rejected. So here's my go at a central truth and and this is what I suggest that we all do is just to write something down um, when you read any parable to try and get a simple sentence. The central truth in this parable is that God is commissioning us in the period between his first and second coming to be good stewards with what he's entrusted us with for the extension of his kingdom and he will hold us to account for how we've done this. So application. So, so what relevance does this story for have, us, have for us in the 21st century? Well, if the story is set between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, then clearly we are in that period of time. In the ministry of Jesus, we saw that he called many people to follow him, to lay down control of their own lives and surrender their lives and become followers of him. 
And that was a genuine call for everybody. It wasn't favourites. Everybody was treated equally. Um, John's Gospel tells us in 1 verse 12, Yet to all who received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. God offers the call to all. But the question is, do we accept that call and do we accept the commission that Christ gives to every of his followers from century one right through to today? And there are some people who reject the call. Like many of the Pharisees who thought that they had religion all worked out and that there was no place for um, responding to God. And so the parable does tell us that... um, If we don't come through Christ, then we're not going to have eternal life with him. So it is possible to reject the Christ. And we can even come and hear the gospel. The Pharisees were experts in the Old Testament. We can know God's word, but there is a place where we need to respond personally and ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of our life. And if you've never done that, today is a day when you need to consider about where you stand with God in that regard. But there's another part of it that I think is is more interesting. And it's sort of hinted at in terms of the putting the money in the bank and earning interest or using the resources that God has given for his purposes. You see, I think that um, God is saying to us, that we are all different, we have different abilities. He has blessed us with different spiritual gifts and it doesn't matter about comparing ourselves with one another, but God does ask with whatever he's given us that we serve him in his kingdom's purposes. And the issue is this, are we prepared to serve him now so that when he comes we will be found faithful and productive in what he's given us to do. You know, um, I guess it still happens today, but I can remember when I was a a Bible college student, one of the popular lunchtime discussions, that's what Bible college students used to do when they all lived together, would have theological debates. One of the big discussions was, can Jesus be your saviour without being your Lord? And the whole sense of the boat was that some people would say, look, as long as I say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, please accept me. Um, I want you to come into my life so that I will be with you forevermore. Now get out of the way. I can just do my own thing, live my own way, serve myself. Or when you actually surrender to Jesus, is it more than just asking for him to give you fire insurance when you die? Is it really about bowing the knee and giving him control of your life? And they used to talk about easy believism. We might call it nominalism. Oh, yes, I'm part of the church. I live a good life and God will have to accept me because I'm part of that tradition. Whereas I think this story is telling us that when we accept his call, we also have to accept God's commission, and that is to serve him. You know, as a church, and I'm very blessed to have been part of this church for the last 10 months. Um, God is um, um, talking to me continually and um, and to us all. I I couldn't help but reflect on the fact that we are taking time to ask God, what's he calling us to? If I use the words that we've used here, 
What is God commissioning us individually but part of Brackenridge Church to serve him for in this time going forward? You know, it's like he's come and said, I've brought you people together. I've given you all gifts to use, your time, your talents, your treasures, all those things, all the resources. But what are you going to do with them? Are you going to fulfil that commission? And we're praying this year about God making it clear what he wants us to do. But there's another step, isn't there? Are we actually going to have the faith to step out and do what he wants us to do? Are we going to wholeheartedly serve him? The challenge for us is to be committed to serve God out of who we are. The challenge for us, and um, I hadn't thought about it until just listening to David then, is to be united together so that we can be God's people in a place and a time where it's full of anxiety and difference and the world is confused. God wants us to be united. But the question the parable asks is, what's God going to say to us when we stand before him? Is he going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. What I've given you, you've used for my glory. Or is he going to say, well, it's like you put it in the bank account and you, um, or you buried it and you didn't respond. God doesn't go back and do it on a, a number system. He continues to want our heart to grow towards him. This is not about guilt for the past. It's about hope for the future. It's really about us being prepared to put our whole hearts into serving him as we move forward. And I'm excited to see what God is going to do for a people who love him, who accept his call, who take up his commission and work together for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we know that you tell us that you got written in the scriptures by the work of your Holy Spirit through the hands of men and women, Lord, the things that you wanted to have written. We just pray, Lord, that um, you would continue to speak to us through your word that we would be a people who um, seek and come before your word, not with presuppositions or ideas to try and agree with our thoughts, but to be open to what you might say to us and through us. Bind us together, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.